Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is CEO of Gravity Payments, Dan Price. In 2015, Dan made headlines for announcing his plan to raise the minimum wage for everyone at his company to $70,000, taking over a $1 million pay cut and reducing his own salary to $70,000 as well. The story had over 500 million interactions across the internet and became the most shared video in NBC News history. This year, Dan further reduced his salary to zero when the COVID-19 crisis hit to avoid having to lay off his employees or charge their customers higher card processing fees. Dan's been featured on the cover of Inc. Magazine, named Entrepreneur of the Year several times, and he's been recognized by many publications, including the New York Times, ABC News, and the Today Show. He is also an incredible speaker, super fun, and he's a good friend. Welcome, Dan. Thank you so much for being here. Shauna, I've missed you a ton. It's really nice. I wish we were in person, but it's really nice it to would see be, you. I know. It would be so fun. First, we're going to start with rapid fire, and then I want to hear all about COVID and how you've been dealing. As social beings, need we need interaction. We need hugs, right? Absolutely. It's hard. Okay. So knowing you, this is a fun one. Um, wakeboarding or snowboarding? Snowboarding. Nothing beats snowboarding for me. But you're such a good wakeboarder. I want to see you do snow. I've, ne I've never seen you snowboard. I've seen you wakeboard. Check, check my Instagram. There's a few little clips. And also just okay. recently, uh, I did a collaboration with CNBC about how much of money you need you to be happy. And uh, they did a lot of uh, a video of me snowboarding just to prove the point of how happy I am sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love that. Except for it is an expensive sport. Okay. Yeah. What quality do you most seek out in a friend? Honesty. If you could be a famous singer, actor, athlete, or writer, which would you choose? That's an easy one. I love music. I was supposed to be a professional musician growing up, and that's, that's my long lost love. I think, I mean, you're still young, and you got the hair, and you got the vibe, <laughs> and you got the abs for it. Let's just make you a rock star after this. I'll be Dan 2.0. I love it. I'm in. <laughs> Is there a quote or a motto that you live by? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I do quite like uh, like the the kind of stoicism philosophy in a way of um, like basically I I don't know that it's an exact quote but but like the the difficult things in life are actually good for you and teaching you a lot um, in yeah. in some cases not in all cases but in some cases. Yeah, I'm sure there's a quote. I'll find one and I'll send it to you. But I know <laughs> well, we exactly could say the obstacle is the way <laughs> if we wanted to reference Ryan Holiday. That would be a good one. Okay, we could do that. If there was a movie made about your life, what would it be called? And there may still be one, right? Uh, I don't know about that. Um, I would say uh, To Be Determined. <laughs> that's the title. I'm not saying, like, we already know that's going to be the title. <laughs> All right. Okay, cool. Do you hate to lose or love to win? Um, I, I love to lose and I hate to win. What? Yeah. Are you getting confused? No. Have you had your coffee? You're serious? Yeah. Okay. We're, not, we're gonna dig into that. Yeah. Okay. If you could sit down and interview anyone, dead or alive, I'm sure you've been asked this before, but I'm curious, who would you choose? Mm. Uh, I, I don't, I think that my answer would change every day, but today my answer would be Malcolm X. Mm. It would totally change. That's a good one for today. I wish we could interview him. Mm -hmm. We got to come up with a, another plan. Okay. So um, as we were talking about before we got onto the, um, onto the live like podcast part of it, there's so much. I mean, you've been, you've been at it for such a long time as far as, you know, you started your business when you were a teenager, which is the coolest story ever. Um, and there's been a lot of press and a lot of coverage of you. And I want to make sure that I dig deep into this, like in the EO terms, that like 5%, because I'm super curious about the core of you, that like who you were as a child and who influenced your spirit. Yeah. 
Well, let me give you a little bit of background on that, but I would definitely say my parents and my siblings, you know, from an early age, but I'm the fourth of six kids. And although my family is originally from the Midwest, we moved to rural Idaho when I was five years old. And my next door neighbor was a dump, literally. Like we lived out in the country in the middle of nowhere next to a very famous dump um, called Pickle Butte. And so it's just truly kind of like the middle of nowhere. And um, I grew up listening to Rush Limbaugh from 10 to one every single day. And I grew up uh, reading the Bible out loud every morning for an hour, uh, practicing memorizing the Bible for an hour a day, and then studying theology for one hour a day. So basically three hours of Rush Limbaugh kind of conservative uh, indoctrination and then three hours of kind of conservative Christian indoctrination. So six hours is a, a fairly healthy dose. And then there's another kind of funny story that's emblematic of my childhood, which is one day my parents were freaking out, like wondering where I've been all day. And I used to go on 10 hour walks, eight hour walks, basically every single day when I was like five, six years old out in the middle and being the fourth of six kids, neither one of my parents had college degrees. You know, I always thought it was really impressive when either of my parents could remember my name on the first time. So it was fairly low <laughs> expectations and nothing against them at all because, you know, my dad was working around the clock to try to support a family of eight. My mom homeschooled us, so she had a pretty high bar. But this particular day, they were worried that they hadn't seen me for eight or 10 hours because there was a mountain lion on the loose and they were worried that I had been eaten. And uh, I, I, I decided in that moment that I wasn't going to tell them right away. I would wait a day or two to tell them that I basically would do that walk every single day. And they hadn't noticed for a couple of years <laughs> um, oh because they were like, why did you go for 10 hours without telling everybody? You're like, why is today different from all other <laughs> yeah. days? But the reason why it was different was because of a mountain lion. And I have three older brothers. Um, my two oldest brothers were both valedictorians at their small Christian high school. It's like a little church high school, so it's not like the most impressive, but they both went on and got, you know, fancy, nice degrees and very well accomplished academically. And then I had another brother that was old, like just a little older than me and him and I are the middle children. Um, so we were basically just like constantly like, you know, playing sports together, competing together, everything. And then uh, my little sister, you know, she's four years younger than me and my little brother's seven years younger than me. So like, you know, those people are just uh, so precious to me and, and my everything. And sometimes we get along great. Sometimes we don't. But I would say, yeah. you know, my family had a big influence on me. Well, I clearly when I was just getting ready for this, I don't think you and I've ever sat down and talked about your childhood. And I, I knew little parts of it but I didn't quite realize the intensity of it. I can't even, I mean, from who I met 10 years ago when we first became friends, it, it, none of it adds up. Your energy is really powerful. And so when I talk about the influence of your family or the influence on you, it's, it's for me, like, is there, were you always that person in the family? If you're sitting at a table of eight, are you the person that's kind of energetic? Well, just to say a little bit more, and then I'll kind of go into that answer. So for me, there were like two things that I was really banking on growing up as a kid. One was that I had an eternal creator who loved me unconditionally, and that was really big in my life. Um, and, and the second one was that I would live forever. So those were like really nice things. And like, ha like it gave me a sense of like basically security as a child to know those things or to feel those things were true. And then in terms of my family dynamic, what was really awesome was that my, my, older, my older brothers were old, much more mature and, and older than I was. And then my dad was constantly kind of like mentoring young people that were older than me. So I got a lot of exposure to like people that yeah. were older than me. And so my role was basically like, if I could get like one or two like words in, but have them be high quality, like mm. I felt... 10 out of 10 good about myself and like having three older brothers who are all stronger than you and like our parents you know they spanked us pretty violently growing up as like a punishment thing and the shit kind of rolls downhill on that stuff and so it was like this balance of like how do I engage so I'm not lonely and I can connect with these people and really like have an authentic relationship but also how do I stay on the right side of things so I don't get the crap beat out of me and, yeah. uh, and so it was like constantly like figuring that out, but I would just love 
listening to these conversations of people that were older, wiser, and like thinking through. And also the fact that I was not able to really fully engage caused me to have like a pretty intense, like internal dialogue, I would say. Yeah. On your 10 hour walks. And so what happened to you as far as your family relationship when you kind of rebelled as a teenager? You know, I never actually felt like I rebelled at all. And that was confusing to me because um, I remember I, I, uh, one day I thought it would be cool to like paint all my fingernails different colors or paint them black because I thought it looked cool. And I also like started buying all my clothes at like a thrift shop because, you know, the only way I would get clothes would be like Christmas presents from my grandma and she wouldn't necessarily buy like the clothes that I thought looked cool. The Christmas sweaters weren't cutting it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, you know, so I started doing secondhand stores and, and all that sort of thing. And, and then I, the, what took the cake is we weren't allowed to dye our hair or anything. And so I sprayed hydrogen peroxide in my hair one time and went in the sun and it changed the color a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I remember my dad telling me when I was a kid that like, hey, you have like basically like an evil spirit inside of you, like a rebellious spirit. And the way that I know that is that God told me that like audibly, not metaphorically, but actually like audibly. And so you need to figure out like how to beat that. And like the, these, the things that I mentioned are the proof points. But in my mind, I was just like, no, I just think these things are cool. I like you. I like the yeah. way you dress and live your life. I just don't want to dress and live my life exactly this. I want to do it like 99% the same, not 99% yeah. the same. And in my mind, that wasn't really rebelling. But I will say there was a moment in, because I did go to like this church school in high school, and there was a moment where I saw Pascal's wager for the first time. And it's a simple matrix that basically says, if all these things are true, it's really important and imperative that you believe them. But even if these things aren't true, it's still better for you to believe them because growing up in that community, if you come to different co uh, conclusions, even just through like just an honest kind of questioning and discovery process, mm -hmm. if you come to different conclusions, then you risk basically being pushed out of your family, your community, all your friends. Right. right. And so that was like scary to me. And I remember as a high schooler thinking, it's just not worth it. Like, I, I, I'm not going to get anywhere by doing that. And like, these things are so important. I have no way of giving them up. But I came across that again shortly after I graduated high school, and I just felt like I needed to take that responsibility more seriously to be a truth seeker, to, to, to go out there and, and Oh, look. yeah. And I, I mean, yeah. Religion to me has always been, you know, I grew up Jewish, and it's always been for me a thing. I wasn't in a religious family at all. It was more of a cultural thing. But it's part of the culture to question, probably to a fault. Yes. Like Judaism is all about questioning. And yeah, and it's, it's, it's the neuroses comes from that because mm -hmm. you're always like questioning, questioning, questioning. <laughs> um, but There's always you find the devil's any... advocate. Right. And so sometimes I almost get scared of people who are too religious because to me it feels like a divisive thing because of all the anti-Semitism and just yeah. what it represented to me. Well, and, and for me, like it was, it was interesting because I didn't view it as rebellion, but I was coming from a place where basically 99% of the people around me were telling me that it could only be rebellion if I wanted to seek out answers to any of these mm -hmm. important questions. Um, but funny little uh, factoid was that we would pray for Israel and the Jewish people every single day. So there's like some like conservative Christians that have this kind of like oh, of probably course, odd like fascination. No, no. Well, that's the, it, yeah, no, of course. That's a big part of it. So it, it was weird starting, you know, starting from like two, three years old. Like I remember like praying for Israel, like every day, um, even though like, I don't know that I knew like a single Jewish person because there aren't a whole lot of because Jewish in, people yeah, in Idaho. In Idaho. Yeah. There are, there are some Jewish people, but it's not like a, it's not as big as it would be. Like there aren't as many yeah. Jewish people in did you, New York Did or you Seattle. find, right. Or LA. Or LA did you yeah. find, um, religion to be something that grounded you ever? Yeah, I did have, I did have a, a, a gentleman from Gravity tell me one time that he didn't really like when I talked about my background, like the way I'm talking about it with you, because he felt hmm. like it was a bit misleading. He was like, if you look at where you started and the things that you used to say and the things you say now, you've grown so much as kind of a leader and as a person 
but everyone's always so focused on your background that they forget that a lot of the most influential people in your life today are people that you've worked with or, or small business owners in the community that have influenced you. And that's true. But I would say the grounding part really came from those two things of feeling like, oh, wow, like I'm like, I, I literally have this like special relationship with my creator that can like, ne that will never be taken away from me. Well, it's nice that you were able to divide the two because that's, that's how I look at it is like, I feel very spiritual and very connected, but I don't judge myself by the rules that maybe a more religious Jewish person would around like what you eat and when you pray. And, and I understand that this is my, maybe a like wrong thing to say, but that's how I experience it. So that makes sense to me. I really like, I really like the way you're approaching that though, because I think conversations are such a powerful tool for learning. And I, I, yeah. I, I, especially now, I feel like we need to have conversations, even if we oh, it's perfectly best. right. We've got the three kids that you know, at, you know, 15, 13, and 10. And the 13-year-old in particular is very engaged in the world around her. And she's all about social justice. And our dinner table, every now and then, I'm like, can't we just, like, chill? Like, we're just, <laughs> it's a very engaged moment right now. And I think it, I agree with you. It's important. So is there a moment in time that you can look back on from your childhood and say that, you recognize that you had leadership qualities? Not 19, I'm talking like fifth grade to yeah. eighth grade. Um, not really, I would say. I mean, I, I, I don't, I, I would say leadership qualities maybe, but not kind of special leadership qualities or not anything that like outstanding. Um, there were a lot of good leaders um, around me when I was a kid and and also we were in a situation where there was so much bias toward like certain types of leaders, you know, men, mm. right. White mm. people, like all this yeah. sort of thing. And, and, you know, I don't think any of us were really like aware of that bias, but certainly it was present. And yeah. there were times where I was kind of in positions of leadership. Um, like I, I would like would lead like praise and worship at my school uh, mm -hmm. I was in a rock band growing up. And so we would, you know, go I on love tour that. and, and in the band, like they would lean on me for certain parts of business things, um, you know, yeah. like booking tours, negotiation, all those sorts of things. Yeah. yeah. But I'm still trying to figure out if I'm a good leader and I feel like I have a lot of leaders around me. Well, I think that you're a great leader, um, from where I sit, because I think of you as being very authentic and I think of you as being an empath. And I think those are good qualities in a leader that you're transparent, you're open, you're open to feedback. I would be curious to know if you weren't doing gravity, would you be comfortable working for someone else in a kind of secondary position? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm probably outside of kind of the context at work. I'm, I'm, I'm more comfortable in that role. I'm in that role more often. And then, Oh really? Yeah. And you're like group of friends and you're going on a trip who are you in that trip? Are you planning it? Are you rallying the people? Are you researching where to go? Or are you just showing up and being fun? It's highly flexible, but I would say um, I'm more comfortable when I know for sure that I'm not doing too much. Yeah. And I, like different than uh, your brother, who I, I know mm -hmm. and, and really adore, um, as I know you do. I, I'm not that person. Like, I'm not that person that's going to like, kind of like be like, that all the time or feel comfortable like he feels obviously very comfortable kind of in that role and for yeah. me there's there's a level of discomfort to the leadership role or like yeah. the person that's kind of organizing and rallying that like yeah. I kind of view it as like what is what does the situation need more as opposed to like what do I want to do um, yeah but if I'm thinking like what do I want to do I like like meditation I like long walks I like quiet you know, and I also mm -hmm. like to, you know, just have fun and play, like just playing is probably, yeah. so the, the, like I would say at least those two things, like kind of quiet time and play would be yeah. way ahead of leadership in terms of what I enjoy. Yeah. Interesting. And so you started Gravity in high school or like 19, I guess, or maybe in college. So in your dorm room, um, you started it with your brother. Um, did you guys have uh, the idea and then say, Hey, bud, let's do this together. Or how did that conversation first happen? So I, I was playing in a rock band when I was 17 and I was between my sophomore and junior year. And I started, um, interacting with this coffee shop owner named Heather Hempel in Moxie Java, uh, in Caldwell, Idaho. And she, 
she provided like an amazing venue for us as a band because we were underage and so it was tricky and she basically just let us use her space and we could raise a bunch of money for like our recording projects or our tours by having acoustic cover shows at her space because we always would just do like we would never do covers we'd always do our own shows we always do like full-blown rock shows but we needed to make more money. We didn't want to be doing a rock show once a week. So we said, we'll do these acoustic cover shows and we'll sit down so we feel some like separation between this and like our art in terms of what we're creating. And it was just, it would create like an amazing vibe and so much fun. And I just loved her and she was so generous. And she was complaining to me about how her credit card processing fees were like too high and she needed to reduce what she was paying us. And so, I dug in and helped her out and then she kind of like told other people about that and at the same time my dad was uh, basically taking like a year off of work because he um, had worked his way up at this company where they offered him like six or nine months of severance when he was leaving and so he he's now a consultant he has a company called price associates and so he was teaching me a bunch and had also had a little bit of exposure to the industry i'm in and in the meantime, Lucas, my, my second oldest brother, he was working kind of in a corporate office in California of a company in this industry. And so I had all these like funny connections that all came together, but I didn't really have any product or anything. So I would just do procurement. I didn't know what that word meant at the time, but basically I would just negotiate and buy this service and others for Heather and for her friends. So mm -hmm. I did that my junior and senior of high school. And I was able to get a couple hundred clients doing that in high school. That's amazing. That's <laughs> insane. What was the business model back then and how has it changed or stayed the same? Yeah, it was basically like, um, for those of you that know, might know, like in order to get paid with a credit card or an electronic form of payment, you basically have to join this very corrupt monopolistic system that Visa and MasterCard and others have set up. It's totally illegal. And in fact, they get sued and settle out of court like once every 10 years for it but they create this monopoly where they take like one and a half, two percent from all the small businesses. And then you have credit card processing companies in between there and they like way mark that up and it's very opaque. And so I would basically just figure out what a fair rate was and tell the company if they didn't charge my client that rate, I was gonna take them to another company. And the service is horrific, it's really horrible. So I would just be like a filter between this really bad system and structure and service and the small business client. And my goal was just to save them money and take away stress because like they were always so stressed out that it totally. seemed like taking away stress and headaches was like a huge value add. And it gave me like a lot of just, I don't know if I want to use the term self-esteem, but I just felt really well, like good. purpose and yeah. also a sense of purpose. Yeah. I mean, that's huge. Yeah. So that was the model. And then that allowed me to save enough money to invest and start building my own product. And so that's where we were able to come together. And Lucas was like really good at kind of like the back end, like technical, like regulations and like sifting through all that stuff. And I was like, good at interacting with the customers and then like kind of value proposition for our clients and like value mm -hmm. proposition of as a company. So it was a really mm -hmm. natural partnership because we had very complementary strengths. We were opposite in terms of what we were good at at that time. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, um, I was offered a music scholarship to come to Seattle and study at Seattle Pacific University. Um, uh, which is a small conservative Christian college. And it was kind of like our family. There were two things. Number one, you have to go out of state. And number two, you have to go to a, a Christian college, conservative Christian college. Neither one of our parents went to college. So it was like, or graduated. So it was like really important that all six of their kids went. I didn't want to be the one to screw that up. So I came to yeah. Seattle. Lucas and I, I think, walked through Discovery Park, if I'm not mistaken, in Magnolia in Seattle, and then went to um, Blue Sea Sushi, which is one of those. I remember Blue Sea Sushi. Yeah, the, yeah. the conveyor belt sushi in yeah. Fremont. And we sat there and Lucas was like, hey, instead of you doing your business separately and me having my job separately, why don't we join up and do it together? And then yeah. if we do that, we might be able to kind of start our own thing. And I had a bunch of savings and kind of an income stream that I could bring to the table. And, yeah. you know, Lucas was my older brother and gave me lots of confidence that he wanted. I mean, the idea that your older brother would want to be in business with you is like kind of a yeah. fantasy land to me. So it's just yeah, like the best thing ever. And, and that's why yeah, I and you, 
I love that. And so you ultimately ended up buying him out and it resulted in eventually having a, a lawsuit that got public. And I'm sure that was as somebody who values family and relationships so heavily, super painful for you. Yes and no. Are there any lessons that you took away from that or would you change anything if you could look back and redo anything or no? Probably a lot, but I'll, I'll say that, I mean, I love my brother so much and I have it every second of my life. Uh, maybe starting tomorrow I won't, but I kind of doubt it. Um, you know, and I look up to him so much. He's so smart. And in my mind, having a system where you can basically, if you can't agree on something, be able to go to a third party adjudicator and get a decision yeah. that you both have to live with, that seems actually like a pretty amazing system. And so I think most people think, oh, that's so horrible that you got drugged through the mud, you know, with like a kind of like a public PR campaign against you funded by this lawsuit and, you know, lawyers speaking about, out about you publicly trying to kind of do character assassination. There are some of those things that would be like better if they were kind of left outside of it. But for the most part, you know, we basically got like a year, year and a half where we were able to write to this judge who's a professional judge, this is what she does for a living. Then we, ha then we sat through three weeks with her and explained everything to her. And then maybe like two months later, or a month after that, she, uh, it's a little weird that they write you an email. I mean, I think the decision should be in court because it's so consequential. She tells us that she decided that I didn't do anything wrong and I had not asked for anything and I, I basically didn't want her to do anything for me with one exception. I wanted all my attorney's fees covered because I didn't think that I should be there. Of course. And so of course. She, so she said, we're, like, all your attorney's fees are covered. This isn't going to cost you a penny. Um, and then there's like, a lot of people don't know about this, but there's like a two-year process afterwards. And I do think people should know about this, where in, in a big case like this, it's going to tend to get appealed to the Court of Appeals, and the Court of Appeals in, in the King County is a three-judge panel that gets randomly assigned out of 12 judges, and all three judges unanimously said Dan didn't do anything wrong. He held the highest standards, and then there's another year process of the Supreme Court, and so, you know, so it's about a three- or four-year process altogether but at the end of it, and I really think that's good, you have a chance to kind of unwind all of it and figure it out. Like if, for example, at the end of the three weeks, you got a decision and that decision went live the next day, I feel like that'd be too jarring for people. So the fact yeah. that it takes like a year or two in most cases to actually implement the decision, assuming there's going to be appeal, I think is probably a good thing. And then yeah. at the end of all that, you know, I had promised that I was going to um, and I promised my brother and my family and everybody else, and I just set the expectation, I'm going to take care of, of this person. I don't care what happens to me. I'm just going to do the right thing no matter what. And so at that point, um, you know, I decided to, to, to buy him out and, you know, um, and, and, you know, pay what I thought was like the, the, the right amount and the fair amount for the, the shares yeah. that he had. And so I just think, there were times there, don't get me wrong. There've been times where I've been very angry at him. Um, but when I get angry, I can run really fast and I can lift a lot of weight. So I would just go to the gym. You're like in the running. best shape of your life. <laughs> yeah. like, these abs didn't come from nowhere. Yeah. And so, did, so, so it worked <laughs> out, you know, and it worked out for him. Like, um, you know, I hate to ever speak from, for the relationship from one side of it, but I'll say that yeah. from my standpoint, the, so only strictly speaking for myself, I've gotten yeah. so much out of my relationship with him. I don't know where I'd be. I don't know where I'd be in life, or if I'd be as far along in life as I am without him encouraging me and influencing yeah. me along the way. And yeah. I would say, even though like there's probably times where we're not like the closest. If I zoom out, you know, he's one of the best and most important friends that I've had in my entire life. And that's amazing. And there's always periods of time. I mean, you and I, like, we haven't seen each other for months, but like, you know, we could go through a period of time, you know, the way we click where we're like best friends for a year. And then we could go through a period yeah. of time where we don't see each other for a year. Yeah. And I feel you've like got that foundation. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And so you've got really strong values that you've created at the company. Is that something that was super organic that kind of came to be, you know, the honesty, transparency, or, or did you sit down 
who had a seat at that table to create the values? Yeah, I mean, I would say it's evolving. And I, and I, I personally think that we have a lot of uh, room to grow in that. I don't think we're at a destination, but I will say that um, early on, my dad offered to sit down with me and Lucas and basically like just listen to us and document what we were saying about what our values were. And the, the founding documents of the company, for lack of a better term, that he like helped us put together, they, they put employees and clients ahead of shareholders or wealth kind of from the beginning. And that was yeah. a key point because that's basically what the lawsuit was about is, yeah. are you allowed to do that or not? And like to have that in the founding documents was like very instructive, I think, to like third parties looking in. But then like evolving from that, I will say that we've grown quite a bit um, because initially it was like this idea of like kind of like wealth creation for employees mm -hmm. and clients. We wanted our customers, which are small businesses, to be able to kind of like have that. But I think now we're more into kind of the experience of what we do as opposed to the outcome of what we do. And I think mm -hmm. we've made a shift to trying to value like the experience intrinsically because you know, it's true that like people in my industry will come to me and be like, hey, you know, if you just like shifted two or three things that you could do very easily, like you could be a billionaire like yeah. overnight. And it's like, yeah, but like, I don't know if the world needs another billionaire right now. And I'm having a lot of fun and I'm really enjoying what I'm doing. And I even for me personally, I feel like that level of wealth and power for me would be toxic. And I don't want to be like this God figure because like this, this ex senior executive, he just retired, but he, he's legendary in our industry, 45 years, retired army colonel. And, and he, he came to me, he was like, Dan, you plus a billion dollars will do way more good for the world than you plus gravity. Oh, interesting. And he's like, that's an interest. That's so interesting. He's like, for it's everything actually... you care about, it will be better. Huh? And I was like, oh, shit. And I thought about it. And I was like, you know, maybe he's right. But then I thought about it. And it was like, there's so much concentrated wealth that's creating philanthropy. And basically, what I'm seeing, if I zoom out a little bit, is this system and cycle where business is shifting to kind of be about creating monopolies where you can act with impunity. I mean, if you think about even like going to a hotel, like all of a sudden we have resort fees where it's like a bait and switch and you get this really low rate, but then they add a resort fee. Or like with airlines, you get on and they like, they, there was just a story yesterday about how they wouldn't let people move back to social distance because they hadn't paid the upcharge to be at a seat with no one next to them. And so we've shifted this economy where it's so much more about concentrating more wealth and power. And in fact, the top hundred companies in the United States have gone from having 40% of the profit to having 80% of the profit without any of us even noticing it. And so, yeah, I, I didn't know that until you just said that. And so like within my industry, you basically have like Stripe and Square, which tell their investors that they're trying to create a monopoly so that they can kind of screw everybody. Like that's what they tell their investors. If you like listen to their presentation and they're being very effective, then you have like Toast in my industry, which just laid off 50% of their employees after raising hundreds of millions of dollars on a multi-billion dollar valuation. You have somebody like MindBody Online, which if you go to yoga studios, you've probably heard of it or seen their app. Mm -hmm. like I have, I have MindBody, yeah. 95% of yoga studios use MindBody and like 95% of them don't like it and don't want to work with that company. And so we're creating this economy where there's no more choice, there's no more freedom. And then we're squeezing more and more people where they ba we're basically telling them they have to be so careerist. And then the people at the top they're so, they fear so much being at the bottom because the chasm's so big that they basically run themselves ragged. They don't pay attention as much as they could to being good parents, being good citizens, and they basically work around the clock. So it kind of is hurting everybody in my mind. And yeah, it's, sounded, it's, sounded, it's, it's toxic. You're absolutely right. And so, and so I'm like, well, if we can just be the one company or one of some companies that are basically just fighting that system, I wonder, even though maybe I can't like, yeah, it's true. I can't play God and like, you know, Jack Dorsey that founded Square. 
when Andrew Yang, who was an interesting presidential candidate and says a lot of the things I say, when he was like, oh, I want to give direct grants to people and give money to people, you know, Jack Dorsey was like, great, I'll give you five million bucks out of my $3 billion. And I was like, oh, great, I'll give you $5,000 you know, right. out of my right. million dollars. Right. Like, like, do you I feel like there's shame around that, though? Because I, no. I, I'm actually had never thought of not not for him, but I'd never thought about this advice that this guy said to you, like the impact that you could have, because I was researching as I was getting ready for this. I was thinking about you as a philanthropist and your values. And it seems like your philanthropy is a lot coming through gravity, through the way that you're taking care of your people and your annual giving program and letting them give back and making it clearly a value. Yeah. But then that's just a flipped way of saying it where it's like, okay, now you're the super wealthy person and now you're giving back to all these causes yeah, well, with, your billion, with your billions of dollars. Like, <laughs> that, that could make a, a huge impact. Well, and you know, if you think of like Purdue, uh, uh, whatever they are, the, the pharma company that had yeah. um, oxycodone where they yeah, were oh. like, you know, like telling everybody yes. that it's not addictive. The way it would work for me is if I kind of changed the way gravity's run or sold gravity to another company that would change the yeah. way gravity's run and monetize it fully, they would basically lay off a bunch of employees, use that as kind of like a power play to basically say to all the employees that are still there, you need to basically take whatever I'll give you and not complain or you're gonna join this other side. Then they would go to all of our client base, which we've been doing everything in our power to take away stress and protect them from these unfair practices. And they would go to that client base and they would raise all their prices and add all these hidden fees without telling them. Then they would go to all of our integrated software partners because a huge part of our business, about 40%, is creating technology that goes inside of kind of SaaS products so that that SaaS mm. company doesn't have to have a payments engineering team inside their company. And they would go to those companies, they'd basically say, hey, you, you have a captive audience, you have a monopoly, like let's triple the rates that you're charging to all these small businesses. And that's, those are the changes, those are the specific changes that would be required and, and only those to create this outcome. And so it's- Yeah, they're completely in, in yeah, they're not in line with your values. It's antithetical so to what we stand yeah. for, but at the same antithetical, time- Antithetical, yeah. But at the same time, he's like, yeah, but like, look at all the good you could do. Yeah, that's a- From an ego standpoint, it's a very compelling message and one that's really hard to overcome. Yeah, well, I think it's compelling what you're doing. And I mean, just, I remember in 2015 when you made the big leap and raised everybody, um, you know, you were considering their emotional well-being and thinking about them as human beings and you raised them to 70,000 over time and look at your revenues and what that did for the business and for the loyalty and the tenure of your team and all of it and what your team has done back. Like, I, I really think you had to stick with your gut. I'll say too, I think in 2015, I think I got way too much credit and, and I feel strongly about that. Like, mm -hmm. because what, how it actually went was different than how people reported. Yeah. Tell said. me about that. I actually had that as my question. Yeah. People always ask me about my part of it, which makes sense because they're talking to me. They're not talking to somebody else. So like, I don't fault them for that. And I'll, I just answer questions when people ask me, but it's a little bit misleading because like there are certain questions that people don't ask me that are actually mm -hmm. more revealing than the questions they do. So it's true that I was on a hike with my friend Valerie, who's did two tours in Iraq, who was in the army for 11 years, who's an incredible inspirational person that no one could justify her not making a living wage. And it's true that I had read all those studies. And it's true that when I saw that, I was able to put two and two together and be like, wow, a third of the people that are building this company that I'm the founder and CEO of are making less than what Valerie's making. And that's clearly wrong. But what had happened before that was my first thousand clients, I was on a first name basis with the majority of them and they had my cell phone number. People say $70,000 a year isn't scalable. Well, what's scalable about having the founder, having the cell phone personal relationship with every client? That's not possible. And so we have a team that basically joined that and was so passionate about solving this injustice, about small businesses shouldn't have to pay so much just to get paid when that, you know, it's clearly a racket. And they shouldn't have insult added to injury with bad service and offshoring everything and laying off all the employees that are supposed to support them. 
And so my team was, was so passionate about that. Our team, the people I worked with, they were so passionate about that, that they scaled something that people say is not scalable. And you still see it today in the company. And so we're a company that like our clients love working with us for the most part. Our, you know, not that we've never made a mistake, but our clients know that we have their best interests in mind. And there are these kind of different like software monopolies and forking, forcing mechanisms where maybe like a bank will say, hey, we're not gonna give you this loan if you use Gravity. Or the software company like MindBody will say, we're not gonna let you use Gravity. We're basically gonna make it impossible by engineering Gravity out of it. And so you have all these reasons why people don't use Gravity, but at the same time, like people that experience what it's like, like they, they know a difference, they see it. And that gives me so much joy and pride. And so it's like, how can it be fair that the people actually creating that shouldn't get like a living wage, shouldn't get a piece of right. that pie. Right, but you're, you're not taking the credit. You're saying, well, it wasn't me. So then who was it? Was it sitting around a table? You left Valerie, you read these studies. Well, I so decided on the hike with Valerie and I told her on the hike that I was going to do it. But that was because we started having decisions, uh, we started having conversations around tables at Gravity about this topic starting in 2011. Mm. And that was also something that came up in the lawsuit because it was like, hey, you can't do this, this is wrong. But it was like, well, in 2015, the average pay raise was something like 23% that year and we were phasing it in. So we were yeah. guaranteeing that for three years. But we had yeah. been averaging 15 to 25% for the previous four years before without anybody ever knowing about it, without telling anybody. Yeah. And those were based on conversations of just like, like common sense, because I think like business school basically teaches you how to squeeze everybody and how to take more value for yourself and for shareholders. But like the kindergarten approach, like the things we learn in kindergarten, we're basically yeah. about sharing, about Share, you know fairness, all these things. So yeah. we just leaned into kind of the kindergarten approach to business a little bit, and I think I it was it. I think it was compelling. I think it was inspiring for me. But I'll say I don't think I should get credit for that. I think uh, people, CEOs, leaders, shareholders that don't mandate that, I really do think there should be some shame there because it truly is very unfair. And I think yeah. also that, you know, the team at Gravity, I mean, if you look at the work they do day to day, like my job's not easy. Like I deserve to get paid for it, something, but I don't want to get into this trap where I think, oh, I'm going to make my life miserable by claiming that everything is on me and taking all the credit. Then I'm going to yeah. use that to justify taking all the money. And then, yeah, you know, right, right. You know, the shame around it. Yeah. yeah so it's like, so how it's, do we stop you... that cycle that's hurting everybody? Yeah, I find I find you incredibly inspiring, as you know. Um, so you re you received a lot of press, obviously, tons of recognition, but also some criticism. Are you a person like for me? I'm a people pleaser. I care deeply what people think about me. I'm working through it. Like hopefully in my fifties, I won't care. But does that bother you? Because you know, I just find you to be the most lovable like person, and you know, but. But you can, that does create some controversy with people and criticism. When the criticism's unfair, it bothers me. But I think most of the criticism I've received has been completely fair. And so for that reason, it's been helpful and it hasn't bothered me. Like, for example, when we implemented the 70K, there were two employees that quit over it uh, that were very valued employees. And one employee was sharing how like, hey, you treated me so horribly when it came to money. Like I was working for eight, nine, $10 an hour doing the same job that now you're paying $70,000 a year for. That's wrong. And it's like, that's a totally valid criticism. And there were times in there where I think we could have done better and pushed ourselves more. And then there was a second um, employee who basically said, you're going to create a system where people increase the entitlement that they feel. And I don't want to work in like an entitled culture. And I think that's also a fair comment because like when you do like make things more fair, people do kind of ease a little bit and you get out of that meritocracy trap. You get out of that system of desperation. Yeah. And so I, right. I feel like those things were really fair. And then also, you know, like the, the gentleman that I mentioned where he's like, hey, you know, the story is too much about you. And that was that was at a time when uh, Nick Kristoff, who's a Pulitzer Prize winner, was literally in my office. And this guy like pulled me out of the interview to tell me that. Um, and so it was like- a, Awesome timing. You know, it was a lot of pressure, but, but it was still like, yeah, you know, you're right. 
And so in that particular interview, you know, Nick Kristoff was trying to go kind of to like these same topics and I was able to redirect and say, hey, actually, you know, my, our chief operating officer, who's like my operating partner day to day, Tammy Kroll, like she influences me just as much as anything from my childhood or, you know, uh, Rosita Barlow, who's been at the company for, she's about to have her 14th year anniversary at the company. Wow. I mean, that's amazing. she's had maybe eight different jobs in that time. Like she's had way more influence on me than, you know, anyone would ever give her credit for. Yeah. And there's, yeah, there's all these people, you know, Jessica, Jess Moore, Jessica Moore, who works the company right now. And she's like a rising star in like our sales leadership organization. I mean, she says things to me that change my thinking all the time. And so, That's, well, you're open. You're open to it, so we can give you a little bit of credit. I feel like the criticism's it. been valid for the most part. Well, there's a few people in the media who I think have kind of intentionally tuned out things that didn't go with their narrative. So those mm. were times where it was like, okay, I didn't like that. But when I put that, I, I talked to a few of them about it, and I told them I thought it was unfair, and they were like, well, if you put it in the context of all the coverage you've received very few people are reading my story and most of them are reading the good stories about you. So it's still fair. And when they said that, I was like, yeah, that's true. <laughs> and so you ended, you ended up writing your book worth it. Yeah. What was, what, what was that process like for you? And did you enjoy that? I enjoyed it very much, but um, it was a long process, which I liked. And so in the summer of 2015, I think it was, um, I spoke at Aspen Ideas Festival, and there was a woman um, who was a senior editor at one of my favorite imprints, um, which is part of Penguin Random House, which is not one of my favorite companies, but she worked at Riverhead, and Riverhead is the publisher for Dan Pink's books, which really helped mm -hmm. me, you know, Drive in particular, but all of his mm -hmm. books have helped me. Uh, she also worked at the publisher that, at Riverhead, which did like Kite Runner, I mean, they've done just such yeah. amazing books that I was like, oh my goodness. And then I got to do it. Yeah. yeah. And then I was like, I always thought I would write a book when I was like 65 or 70, not when I'm 30. And, yeah. and so that was my main hang up. And she was maybe like the 20th person in the industry who had asked me to write a book. But it was the first one where she was like, okay. And she's my, uh, my brother lives in Brooklyn and she's my brother's neighbor, uh, which I didn't know at the time. So the next time I went out and saw my brother, you know, I, I just like went to a park, went on a walk with her and we totally hit it off. Um, but then there was like a little blip where I started getting bad press and they got scared and, and Penguin Random House got scared. And so they kind of backed away from it. But at that point, I had written maybe 40,000 words of the book because I was so excited. And, you know, typical book is maybe 60,000 words or 80,000 words, somewhere in there. So I was already like two thirds the way done. And all of a sudden I didn't have a publisher. Mm. So I'm like, okay, well, I've already kind of done the work, but like maybe there's like a better timing for it. So I'll kind of put this on the shelf. I ended up writing maybe like 100 or 150,000 words. And I worked with, I worked with a couple different collaborators, but most of the words are just directly mine and my work. Um, and so that's really cool. I don't know how you have time for all this, but it's, it's impressive. It just flowed. But anyway, I, eventually I was like, you know what? Like, I don't really like the publishing industry. There's a lot of good that the publishing industry does, but the business part of it is not that great all the time. And so I was like, I just want to just publish it. So I just decided to just publish it on my own. And I'm really proud of that, proud of it. I've gotten such good feedback. Like, um, Multiple lawmakers have read it and reached out to me and said that open door if I want to like help them work on public policy law. Yeah. Uh, that would you ever, I was thinking, I'm thinking during this, yeah. like Dan for president, are you, would you ever run for office? No, I mean, no. I don't think I, I don't think I'm the right person. I think you would be much better than me. And so oh. I would rather support somebody like you. Um, that's and sweet. Um, that's never happening. But I think I should be like the, you know, maybe like if there's 300 million people in the United States, I'd like to think I'm in the top half of qualifications, but I don't think oh, I'm in the geez. top 1%. Oh, geez. Well, you've had so many incredibly proud moments at Gravity. I loved, loved the video where you were like crying where your team gave you the Tesla. First of all, I'm looking, I, I like love that car. It's amazing. That's, that's incredible. Highly recommend. And and then through um, through COVID, you know, the period of time, this crazy 
pandemic that we're in right now, your team has shown up again for you. Like, how has this period of time been for you through this pandemic? It's been really hard, honestly. It's been really, really hard. So just really quickly on the car, I mean, cl yeah. clearly, clearly it's not about me. And clearly when you see that, you see that because it's like the people that I work with behind They're my- They're like crying too. Yeah, behind my back, organized. And by the way, not everybody that works at Gravity likes me, likes my personality, likes the way I carry myself. But, they, but the, I think almost everybody, if not every single person at Gravity is bought into the, to our shared mission, which they've contributed to. It doesn't come from me. And so I think when you see the unity, like I'm kind of a divisive person in the sense that if I have 10 friends, maybe like five of my friends love me and five of my friends are a little unsure. And that's true at work too. But I think the idea that we're talking about, like, so it's, it's really not about me, I think. I think it's about this moment in time in the world and what the world needs. But I'd just been through a lot. And so they gave me the car right after hearing that the lawsuit was going away and I was going to be done with all that. And so it was just really like emotional timing, amazing. But talking about the team a little bit more with the pandemic. So I'll give myself just a little bit of credit, which is at least I was kind of honest and forthright with everybody. So like um, in early March, our revenue tanked because our revenue is a function of small business revenue. And we always thought, well, 20,000 small business clients in every industry, in every state in the United States, we have such a diverse revenue stream that you know, we're, we're not really gonna be impacted the same way others would be. But all of a sudden, all small businesses just get really hit. The shift away from small businesses um, has just been horrific. And so we lose 55% of our revenue. And I got everybody on a Zoom call because we closed our office, you know, at late February, early March. And I got everybody on a Zoom call and me, me and, and Tammy, our chief operating officer, just explained to everybody that we had lost over half of our revenue, that it looked like we were going to be losing, uh, you know, thirty to $50,000 a day, up to $1.5 million, $1 to $1.5 million a month. And we had no idea of how we could overcome it. And I had called a few people that I trust to give me their honest opinion in the industry. And 100% of them said, just add a fee to all your merchant base, make it small, make it short term, add 50 or 100 bucks a month. And if you have 20,000 clients and you add 50 bucks a month, you know, that gives you your million dollar shortfall right there. And they won't leave you over it. You're still charging way less than anybody else is. So they really have no option to leave you. And then maybe do like a 10 or 20% layoff and you're, you're going to be sustainable and, and good to go. And so I basically just explained to the team that those were the two options so far that people had told me about. Wasn't going to do either one. And the first idea that came from the team, which we didn't end up doing, was let's have a democratic solution. If we're going to do something like that, let's vote on it and let's make sure that we get 70, 80% of the people voting yes to anything we do. Um, but then other people said, we have so much diversity at the company in the sense that we have a lot of people who are parents where they, with their, now they don't have childcare because the kids are out of school. We have people at the company who their partner just lost their job. So they went from double income to single income. And then we have other people at the company. There was one guy that raised his hand that was like, you know what? My wife makes three times as much money as I do. So he's like, I'm fine with whatever. <laughs> like, he's like, I don't need to make anything. And so somebody said, why don't we just have it just be a voluntary, let's like open up a public spreadsheet, but keep all the names anonymous. We'll all just have a number assigned to our name. And we'll say what pay cut we want and what additional job responsibilities we can take on. And wow. I heard that idea and yeah, I, that I was sick. like, I no way. Well, I was like, no way. I was like, it's not going to work. I mean, it sounds good, but like. Who, someone brought it up just like some random in a person company in a company meeting. Publicly. Publicly. Oh my gosh. And then everyone was amazing. like, and then everyone was like, let's try it. Because I think everybody was thinking what I was thinking, which is it's not going to work, but it doesn't hurt to at least try it because it's the least violent option available to us. Oh my gosh. Wait, and that, at that moment you had three, five months runway, like yeah. where were you? In that, your, in that oh range. And, and the goal, the goal that people had kind of coalesced around was trying to get it to 10 to 12 months from three to five months. Oh my gosh. And so, okay. and so I was like, well, there's no way we're going to 
get that. And in fact, people basically on average asked to work about 50% more when they were already working full-time plus jobs. And homeschooling their children half the time. Yep. And people on average um, asked to take a 30% pay cut, but a lot of people asked to go completely without pay or to take a 50% pay cut. So we decided to not let anybody work for less than half and at different tiers, like if you make if you make eighty thousand, we said you can't take more than a twenty percent pay cut. But if you make wow. two hundred thousand, you could take maybe a fifty percent pay cut. And so we just basically put some rules around it. And when that all shook out, we we ended up with a twenty two percent average pay cut, which took our runway from three to five months to the year we were looking for. But also that extra work that people did, it helped our small businesses recover faster than the macro economy. And I'll, I'll highlight one example, a guy named Austin Kameen that work at Gravity. He found one of our clients that was like on the brink of going under and having to restructure all of their ownership and everything. And restaurants are targeted by Uber Eats, by Open Table. Like Open Table will buy a restaurant's name on Google and then sell those customers, that restaurant's customers back to them that they already had. And Uber Eats will basically do the same thing where they'll basically like put somebody's restaurant on Uber Eats that would never sign up for Uber Eats and then charge 30% of their revenue. So this kept happening. Wait, what? Without somebody ordering from there? Yeah. Yeah. It's really unbelievable. And this is the level of, because if you think about it, if 80% of all new wealth is going to the top 1% every year. And all of those people want kind of like really good returns on their money. Plus you have all the investors that want to get paid top dollar and all the executives that you want to get paid top dollar between the investor and the actual work. That's a lot of money that you have to make. And the only way to do it is to highly leverage a company to take all of the profit of the company and give it to shareholders and, and executives or to create a monopoly. And so they're trying to create this monopoly where they can basically just elbow out everybody out of the entire economy and they have so much money fueling that. So one of our uh, team members, Austin Kameen, he noticed this and for five weekends during the worst part of the pandemic, he put on a mask and PPE and for zero pay at all, he started doing Uber delivery for our client for free, not with Uber, just ordering on their website for what? free for he gave up five weekends of his life what and so we our team just basically said like how can we save if we can just save one more small business or save one more job of somebody working in a small business like that'll be worth it and so we have signed up new customers and helped our customers recover at a higher rate during the pandemic than at any time before so our team's productivity has doubled with decreased pay and work from home. And in many cases, like teams got like two days notice or three days notice that they're gonna be able to work from home and we didn't skip a beat. And so these are the- This is, these, this is incredible. These are the things that incredible. give me hope because if I look at our competitors, their funding is doubling and tripling every year and our funding's not going up at all. So our disadvantage financially and also just strategically and they're building all of this like crazy engineering into their code and into the, the, the permanent economic infrastructure so that the, it, they can own the railways and we always have to pay them a tax. And it's just impossible seemingly to fight against it. But these are the moments where it's like, we actually have a chance. Wow. But if you look at it, it's like, okay, how much of that was me as a leader? Very little. Well, I'm, I'm curious Very as a recruiter, little. I'm super curious as a recruiter, how you vet for like fit or, you know, attributes, because it sounds like, and I'm sure not everybody's like, is his name Austin? I'm sure, Austin not, not, I'm sure not everyone's like Austin, but it sounds like you've got some real gems in there who are living your values beyond times like a hundred. And how do you vet that in an, in an interview? I don't know. Um, I have made, I think, one or two hiring decisions in the past four or five years. Um, so I, and I, I, I sit in if I'm asked to, but I'm asked to very rarely. Um, and so 
but it permeates throughout i'm assuming because everybody must just know know it when you see it kind of thing well, like well i wonder if the whole business leader thing is a bit of a fallacy and i don't know the answer to this but i i sometimes wonder if maybe people are actually pretty good in general and that leaders have such big egos that they think of themselves as these like inspirational motivational leaders but they're actually hurting everybody's motivation more than they're helping it. And I wonder if this behavior is actually kind of like normal given the circumstances, if people are not being squeezed and demotivated by their leaders, by their companies, by their executives. And also, you know, it's interesting because right now in Seattle, you have all these tech companies where the leaders are really phenomenal. I mean, Jeff Bezos is one of the best in the history of the world at what he does, right? And you could point to so many others, but where are they taking the ship? Jeff Bezos has said his winnings, these are his words, not mine, his winnings are so big that he has no way to spend them. And so because of that, he needs to do space travel. And at the same time, people in his factories are literally dying because he doesn't want to make the investment to give them PPE or pay them a living wage or pay them hazard pay. And so he's an amazing leader in his tactical ability, in his ability to inspire and organize and collect people. And everybody working at Amazon, like in Seattle at the corporate headquarters feels like it's so great. But like, I wonder how much our leaders, myself included, are kind of like inspiring us to a dystopian future that's worse for all of us as opposed to, and so like somebody like Austin's an example of like, almost like somebody who's self-led where you take the leader away and you kind of see like, I trust Austin more than I trust Jeff Bezos. Yeah, that totally makes sense to me. Wow. Dan, I mean, I've always been just, as you know, like number one, maybe not, I don't know about number one fan. Clearly you've got a lot of fans and I also know I'm running out of time, but I just have to ask you real quick, what's happening in the personal life? How are you, who are you like quarantining with and are you, has your mental health through all this? been good um but it's been tough um the political situation has been hard on my family because while there are no people in my family who are kind of like totally on the other team there's there's obviously like a bit of a spectrum and i hate the fact that there's even teams right now because i think that we we i think that these problems that I'm talking about, they affect all of us negatively or most of us. And yeah, like I understand like, because I'm, I'm in YPO, I'm in all these CEO circles where the most important thing politically is just low taxes, you know, like lower my taxes and anything else you want to do is fine. But that's been tough kind of like from a family personal situation because it is such a divisive time and, and frankly, unnecessarily divisive um, because you know, I think that the injustices that are, um, you know, perpetuated against black people, against people that are not compensated fairly, against so many other people in different situations, frontline workers being undervalued, I think they're, they're really hurting all of us. And I'm feeling really compelled to speak out, but I know that it makes people in my family feel really uncomfortable around me. And that's been difficult. And so, you know, it's something that we're working through. And uh, that's, that's, that's got to feel a little lonely. And I'm sorry yeah, to hear that because I think that we could, like you said in the beginning of our chat, like it just helps us all grow, yeah. even if everyone's uncomfortable. Yeah. But it's, it's, um, it's been hard. I lost my dog too. And he's like been my best friend for the last 10 years. I got him when he was seven. So I'm he was, an old, he was an old man and he had a good life. And so I'm trying to appreciate that, but he's been kind of my rock through like thick and thin. And so as hard as the pandemic's been for me mentally and emotionally, like he really helped me through the first couple months and then I lost him. I'm so sorry. Oh, that's He was such a gifted person. Like he, I think he, he was part poodle and I guess some dogs can sense cortisol or other kind of chemicals that your body excretions. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. he would always come and comfort me when I was stressed and everything. But I feel like, um, you got to get a new dog. We have a labradoodle, so that part doodle, part lab. I swear, my dog is human. Yeah, but I, yeah, no, they're human. Almost sure. superhuman in certain ways. Superhuman, yeah. and they do. They go. My dog will go to the kids' room or to the person's room in the house who's struggling. 
you could the dog feels the energy and knows where she's needed yeah oh i'm sorry to hear that we're gonna get you a new dog that's our next <laughs> that's our next move i miss my um, mikey for sure oh well i'm sending you um huge hugs there's so much else i want to talk to you about and i know how busy you are so i'm really grateful that you made the time of course um and i can't wait to see you soon my ultimate question that i ask everyone on the podcast is what fuels you what fuels dan mm. price I think just, uh, you know, whatever work needs to be done is what fuels me. So just trying to look at things as obviously I'm not objective, but trying to be as objective as possible and just seeing what needs to be done. It just feels good to do it. Yeah. Well, you're doing so much and I wish we had more leaders like you. Uh, we could all learn from you and I hope people that need this energy listen to this podcast because... <laughs> We could all use a little bit of, of your wisdom. So thank you so much. Shauna, I really look up to you as a leader. I admire you. I wish oh, I wish you. I could have been interviewing you the whole time because I know you have a lot of insights. <laughs> we can do that another time. I, yeah, let's we'll do that. that. We'll, we'll hang out soon. Yes. Thank you for the Sending platform. Big love. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah. I really appreciate of it. Of course. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You.